Connection is a podcast created by Free Press, an advocacy group fighting for your rights to connect and communicate. Each episode, we'll talk about what's happening in the world of media, technology, and journalism, and what we think is next. Learn more at freepress.net. Today's episode is hosted by Candace Clement and Colette Watson. The views and opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Free Press. Our panelists today include Mignon Clyburn, former FCC commissioner and the first black woman to serve in that role, Stephen Renderos, Senior Campaigns Director at Center for Media Justice, Carmen Scarato, Senior Policy Counsel at Free Press, and Jessica Gonzalez, Deputy Director at Free Press. I'm really excited about this conversation and uh, to take some time to really talk about the Lifeline program um, and the, the threats that we're seeing currently in this administration to that program and you know also reflect a little bit on the the changes that have happened to the program over the years to sort of move from the age of ensuring that everybody is connected uh via the ability to to speak on the phone to really addressing that uh clearly important digital connection and and that connection to the internet as well so should we get started with the media moment i think so um panel What's a media moment that stuck with you from the last couple weeks? So this is Mignon, I start out, and I think I have two moments. Uh, one uh, is tragically unfortunate and sad, and I'm still trying not to process, but the um, incident in Dallas with uh, Botham Sean uh, Jean. Um, I, I don't think, as long as I'm conscious, I will ever uh, get over uh, hearing about uh, uh, that uh, you know, what happened in that apartment complex, it's going to stick with me for a while. And I've really shut down part of me uh, to deal with it. On a more positive, though interesting note, um, uh, the uh, women's tennis match I thought was incredibly interesting. I am really happy for uh, Naomi um, Osaka. And um, there's a lot of conversations that, uh, you know, a lot of talk we need to have about uh, Serena Williams and, and the observations and, and some of the um, challenges uh, tennis um, um, has obviously uh, with uh, some gender uh, preferences or uh, is, you know issues along the line. So uh, we learned a lot from that uh, particular tennis uh, that championship match. Yeah, I'll jump in. This is Stephen. Um, you know, similarly, I was thinking about the you know the U.S. Uh, fi- U.S. Open final. Um, for me, I think in particular, I think around the policing of black bodies and the way that it shows up in sports. Um, that's been very prevalent in my mind over the last couple of weeks. We obviously with what happened with Serena Williams, I think the positive is obviously, I think the reaction, uh, the way that I think there can be a, a very rapid outcry almost instantly in a way that forces institutions to respond. Um, the USTA responded almost immediately coming out in support of Serena Williams and also criticizing the official for for what they did. Um, there's obviously more that they can do. And and then, you know, we see it on the other end of the spectrum with a sport like football, uh, where they've mishandled, uh, you know, how to allow their athletes to express themselves um, politically, socially uh, within the sport. And, 
you know, how Colin Kaepernick coming out with the Nike ad um, during the first weekend of, you know, the first weekend of football. I, I think these are very interesting moments, I think, where the the ability of black athletes today to express themselves and to have a chorus of people that are behind them and that support them, uh, that feels, you know, different in terms of our media moment. It's not like we haven't had outspoken athletes before, um, but they exist now within a communications like ecosystem in which their voices actually carry beyond the sport. Yeah, I'll jump in now. This is Jessica. Um, I was really just sort of impressed with the response to what was pretty clearly uh, a racist and misogynistic uh, direction that the umpire took towards uh, Serena Williams. And the thing that's, that's sticking out to me most is really all those videos and memes of John McEnroe <laughs> yelling at the umpires. And it, it just shows the power of the internet and the creativity that folks are showcasing there to push back uh, and to really illustrate. It's just so clear um, that, that the rules of the game and the, and the norms are being applied inequitably. So that, that was really, I guess, the positive takeaway of what happened there. Um, so I'm, I have that and I'm going to sneak one more in that I'm still ruminating over a a Washington post piece that came out on September 6th, um, covering an analysis that shows that that racism and anti-Semitism surged in corners of the web after Trump's election and following uh, what happened in Charlottesville last year. And, um, just really sort of thinking about as we're discussing like these moments of what this backdrop, what the rhetoric that's um, been so pervasive um, from the president and from white supremacists and and who call themselves white nationalists that organize these these rallies, um, how that informs uh, what's happening in in the real world, in real life, if, if you will. The numbers show a pretty dramatic rise in racism and anti-Semitism on the web. And then to see the responses, um, the responses were just maddening. In fact, one person suggested that um, hate and tribalism are natural. And that's really just sticking with me because I have young kids and I know that's not natural. Our kids are born to love and and we're teaching them to hate, and we can actually unteach and stop teaching that. So that those were my moments. Hi, this is Carmen. You know, for me, uh, the media moment that has been sticking with me just happened actually a couple of days ago, um, which was, you know, the, the government's official death toll in Puerto Rico jumped from 64 to 2,975. And what stuck with me was the president's reaction um, to the death toll. And he just completely um, is in denial of what happened in Puerto Rico and called actually the government's response there an unsung success. And that is just, um, again, it's it's denial. It also just shows how Puerto Ricans are still really being treated as second-class second-class citizens um, and how we really need to acknowledge what happened there so that we can provide the necessary resources to the island so that 
people can rebuild. Um, we're also coming up on the anniversary of Hurricane Maria striking the island, and there's still people that um, really don't have those resources they need to get back to the normal. And again, just that that reaction from the president really stuck with me. And um, he now has been saying that it's um, a conspiracy uh, right now that that death toll is over you know, close to 3,000 people. So yeah, I think it's it's just something that we really need to acknowledge so that we can we can let the people there heal and recover. Well, this is Colette, and that that really struck me too. I mean, it's just so for for a president to make a statement like that, it was really really struck me as shameful and immoral. Um, and I know too, Carmen, that you've done a lot of work regarding um, Lifeline, the program that we're going to talk about today, the impacts of that on uh, the island of Puerto Rico. So I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk about that and wonder, Carmen, if you wouldn't mind telling us really what Lifeline is and, and what is being proposed right now at the FCC regarding Lifeline. And then also I'm hoping to uh, Commissioner Clyburn that you might talk a little bit more about that and some of the ways that you've been fighting over the years. Sure, I'm happy to give that background. Uh, Lifeline is an over 30-year-old program um, that helps low-income families connect to communication services. So traditionally, it has been, it has allowed people to connect to voice services. Um, and in 2016, the FCC expanded the program so that it could also be used for broadband access. So that was 2016. Um, but this recent FCC uh, in 2017 put out proposals um, a series of proposals that are meant to gut the program. Um, they are there to, they alter the scope of the program and they alter the purpose of the program. Um, and there's uh, several proposals, um, many in there, but the ones that I want to highlight is one of them is removing resellers from the program. And resellers are a type of lifeline provider. They serve over 70% of the lifeline population. There's also a proposal for a self-enforcing budget cap. And the reason that that's problematic is that it proposes to first get, first put a cap on the program, but then give um, priority to tribal um, individuals, tribal lands, then to rural and then to everyone else. So then it, it, it pits different populations against each other, just depending on where you live. Um, and then also it imposes a copay um, or it proposes to put, you know, this this copay where people will have to pay into the program in addition to the subsidy that that, that is provided, which is currently nine dollars and twenty five cents a month, in order to participate. Um, so everything, you know, put together, is just again meant to constrict the program and kick people off of the program. And specific to Puerto Rico, the reason that that is uh, so unique is that in Puerto Rico there is 60% participation uh, from current Lifeline eligible recipients. That's over double the national average. And there's about 500, over 500,000 people um, currently subscribed to Lifeline in Puerto Rico. And with these proposals, the, one, the first one that I mentioned, uh, removing the resellers from the program, would actually disconnect over 369,000 people. And to me, you know, given what we were talking about earlier about uh, Hurricane Maria and the impact that that has had on the island, you can see that access to communications 
really to us means access to resources. It's access to information. It's it was critical, you know, to finding food, water, shelter, and very vital to just contacting emergency services, which is something that everyone needs uh, post natural disaster. So I think that's why um, you know Puerto Rico is it, it's such a unique situation. Um, and we can see how we can use the Lifeline program as a tool to help victims rebuild. You know, one of the things, uh, just listening to Carmen, um, that is very clear when we talk about uh, programs like these that are expressly targeted to um, those who are most in need is they are incredibly vulnerable, Um, more, in some cases, more vulnerable uh, than um, you know, the, the the persons, um, at least our interactions with the people who um, are the most uh, in, in need. And, and I say that because Lifeline is the FCC's, and I dare to say one of the one of the only in the nation means tested uh, programs. Um, you know, you know, just one of the few. Um, it, it, it is the universal service is for sure only means a tested program. And uh, when you talk about it, um, if you do not qualify, if you are fortunate like everyone on this phone and many of those who will listen, if you um, are, do, are not that, at the poverty level um, where you would qualify, uh, then this program is not necessarily meaningful to you. But it's meaningful uh, for all of us because it ensures that the most vulnerable um, will have the ability to call 911 uh, to give and, and make calls to ensure that they have access uh, to uh, medical, educational, um, you know, other services that they can get that call and make that call to ensure that they can improve their lives uh, to speak into a new or existing employer or, not, or, or, um, or, or whoever would make their um, uh, existence better. And so what is at stake when we're talking about making these wholesale changes uh, that could be voted on, um, you know, uh, at the end of this month, I'm not, I'm not sure I didn't, uh, I, I sometimes don't pay attention to uh, the, um, the agenda at the FCC now because um, oftentimes it's too painful for me to look. Uh, but by the end of this year, we could be looking um, at uh, just wholesalely uh, turning this program into one of the other three universal service programs, which are basically infrastructure oriented. This was never meant to be an infrastructure program. It was never uh, meant to, to, to look and see how well, um, you know, a, an, an entity uh, explicitly has to build and, and be a facilities-based uh, a, a program in order to, to serve those most in need. It was never meant to be that. It was not designed, it was uniquely designed to directly meet the needs of uh, people who are vulnerable, um, who need telecommunication services the most. Um, and, um, and, and the economics or their uh, income is the factor, um, you know, is, is a factor, the deciding factor, whether they have um, a phone or internet or not. And so to take that away, to do anything to harm that is totally against the FCC's prime directive of, of you know, connecting communities of, of Section 1 of the Communications Act to provide affordable uh, means of connectivity. And, um, you know, the FCC, if it goes through um, with this um, as planned, is violating its own prime directive. And, and um, everybody sees it. Um, it. It is up to us to do something about it. I think 
Commissioner, you're really hitting the nail on the head here. And, and what you're bringing up is something that's been really frustrating for me in seeing this proposal move forward. The FCC has four major programs that it runs through the Universal Service Fund, um, which collects a small fee on, on folks' telephone bills and then redirects it uh, to ensure uh, the, the national goal of universal communications for all people here in the U.S. And there's already a huge fund, the high-cost fund, that invests uh, monies to build infrastructure and and far more funds go into there than than into the lifeline fund. And so to see the commission try to redefine the purpose of of really the only or the you know the most prolific and available federal program that helps poor folks get connected to phone and internet services is uh, is incredibly frustrating. And um, as someone who was formerly a lifeline recipient myself. I know the power that this program brings to people. For me, it meant that I had a reliable phone number to put on my resume when I was looking for a job and to, and to communicate with the, uh, the law school admissions and financial aid offices where I ultimately ended up getting my legal education from. And so I know that, that Lifeline has the ability to transform lives and to ensure that when people are going through hard times that we have a way you know, a way to communicate with the uh, and get access to the resources that we need to change the situation. And so, I, you know, this is why I think this is this is the cruelest thing I've ever seen come out of the FCC. It truly is a targeted or at least it seems to be a targeted attempt to disconnect poor folks uh, while reinvesting money in places where we've already invested significantly. And I'm and I'm thinking back to that event we were at, uh, Stephen and Commissioner Encolette, uh, in Skid Row, Los Angeles last mm -hmm. year, where we heard from um, that woman who had was, was formerly unhoused, and she came to the forum to share that when she was looking for shelter, she could not even find shelter without access to the internet. And it just goes to show uh, how far we've come, how our services even those services that are serving the poorest uh, folks in our country have moved online, yet we're restricting their ability to access those by cutting off their communications. It's just incredibly cruel and short-sighted. Yeah, I want to pick up on something that um, that Carmen was saying uh, when she was talking about Puerto Rico and how, you know, of Lifeline eligible residents in Puerto Rico, um, you know, probably two thirds of people who are eligible are actually on the program. Uh, nationally, you know, across the U.S., that's very different. We're talking about a third of, you know, Lifeline eligible you know, low income families who actually access this vital program. And it's, it just reminds me, I think, in, in my entire history of, you know, having worked and uh, doing advocacy around the, this program, it's always struck me that when I've done presentations in front of, you know, groups that work with low income people, with poor and working class people, 
um, people's familiarity with the Lifeline program varies. There are some people that are very familiar with it if you've been on the program, and there's a lot of people that are not. Um, so to me, I think one of the, the cruelest things about what the current Federal Communications Commission is doing is not only just trying to cut off those that are already on the program, but really limiting the potential of other people who may find themselves in a situation where they really need um, access to a program like Lifeline, um, but just who are currently not aware that it exists um, or, you know, are not in a situation where they critically need it. Um, and it's, it's sad because I think we'll talk a little bit about, I think, you know, why these changes are happening now um, and why this is, you know, part of a much larger, I think, ongoing war against the poor that, that this current, you know, administration is engaging in. Um, but we have to remember and, and kind of speak to the history here that this was a program that was founded under the Reagan administration in 85. Um, and it was meant to it was founded under the, the idea that there were going to be some people in society um, at that time who could not afford uh, under any means to have a telephone, landline telephone in their home. Um, and so a program needed to exist to meet the gap. Um, and this program has been in existence for over 30 years and expanded under another Republican administration, the George W. Bush administration, to expand to the to the communications needs uh, of that time, which became cell phones, and now was modernized under the previous version of the FCC, um, you know, to expand into broadband because that's where all of the communications and uh, and the way to participate in our society is now moving towards. It's moving online, um, and so I think it to me it's it's a real disservice um, what this current FCC is proposing to do, when the reality is that this is always across bipartisan means, Republican or Democrat, um, liberal or conservative, this has been a program that has existed and has seen some value. And only in recent years has it come under great scrutiny. And those that have been placed at the center of being responsible for that scrutiny are poor people um, who bear probably the least amount of responsibility in what's happening in anything that's wrong with the program. Um, so that's, I think, something to just remind ourselves about. And ultimately, this is a program that we all pay into. And I proudly and, and down to pay even more uh, into this program. Like if everybody looks at their cell phone bill, there is a certain universal service fee that's attached to it. And so we're all paying into this thing to ensure that those who are most vulnerable in our society actually have access to the communications needs of their time. The one program that can directly uh, be a catalyst, um, it, it be a game changer, uh, for uh, w when it comes to access to uh, critical services uh, it's through, uh, an, through a 21st century means, which is what we were attempting to do to modernize uh, the program to include broadband-enabled services, uh, you know, that is at risk uh, through some type of uh, philosophical and not neutral, not technology neutral. The SBC always brags about, uh, about attempting to be technology neutral, Saying that you can only participate in the program, um, you know, three years uh, after this decision is made, you can only participate in the program as a provider if you, um, you know, are infrastructure, if you, you are a facilities-based provider. It just goes against the entire grain about um, over how things have evolved over the last 25 years in the communication space. If that were the hard and fast rule, there were a lot of fights with this. Just think about how our lives would be different 
uh, with these edge providers or these competitors. Um, you know, if you still have a phone book, if you look there and you, you see the, um, the offerings that you have, a lot of those companies, those competitors would not be there, but for the fact that they could start out or they are resellers. Uh, they are able to use an existing um, company's uh, platform. They, they, they sell only, they buy only the services or the platform or the infrastructure they need. So they don't have all of the other overhead. You're now talking and asking somebody to use $9.25 per month per customer to build infrastructure in the 21st century in order to serve um, what could be an even shrinking base if you have a cap on the program, if uh, more people sign up, uh, they're not going to, the cap means a cap. So if you reach that cap, then that $9.25 might shrink. Who in their right mind will build um, uh, an infrastructure or make a, a business decision based on uh, all of those unknowns? So, you know, from beginning to end, when it comes to this idea, uh, you know, that there are so many anti-business uh, you know, anti-free enterprise uh, uh, types of uh, uh, roadblocks that are in the way that I can only conclude uh, that the majority wants to kill the program, that they could care less about how low-income people reach uh, their loved ones. They obviously do not care because this does not make any regulatory or economic sense. Commissioner, I think that's why we saw on the docket, right? This is one of the most unpopular proposals of all time. I mean, uh, I think Verizon, the U.S. Telecom Association, uh, Lifeline providers, I mean, the the vast majority of commenters, I think there's only two commenters who support the proposal and hundreds or maybe even thousands who are opposed uh, because it is, it, it harms people and it harms business. And some of our, you know, some of the same uh, corporations who are our foes on on net neutrality and other issues, even they uh, think that this proposal doesn't make any sense. So, so like it just makes me wonder what what is motivating this chairman uh, and and the majority, if not um, if not an ideological desire to to cut off um, folks who are poor. If you are a business whose model is depending on high margin, postpaid consumers, you will benefit from this. That is the only business model that will benefit from that. So just like you said earlier, it further differentiates or uh, um, uh, already uh, a class of uh, consumers or customers um, uh, that are, are at need. But if you're that high margin, Postpaid customer, you don't have a care in the world, and your business model, who the, you're the provider, your business model uh, will matter, but uh, you know will, will, will benefit from this. But the majority of people who qualify and who are receiving lifeline subsidies today will not benefit, uh, will be further harmed. And so uh, this, no matter how uh, how many uh, shades of lipstick you put on this, uh, you know uh, this does not. Uh, um, I, I could make some um, other um, pig and, and, and other uh, uh, analogies, uh, but I think you get my point. <laughs> but you know, this, there's the argument, right, that, you know, which has been consistent from the very first moment that I ever heard of the Lifeline program to this very day, 
it seems like the consistent argument for changes like the ones that are being currently proposed is that there is rampant waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, and I'm curious, like, Commissioner, from your perspective, having actually worked to implement some changes to address, like, what waste, fraud, and abuse did exist, um, I'm curious if you could talk about what you all did to, to, like, you know, put in some corrective measures. But it's also, I think, worth lifting up here that the waste, fraud, and abuse, like, that argument assumes that uh, we're kind of taps into this larger narrative that poor people are responsible and they will take advantage of programs. And there is like a long history of like local news investigative reports showing you how Obama phones are being like taken advantage of by like poor people. And the imagery being used in a lot of those stories are people of color, in particular black people who are abusing this program, getting multiple cell phones, multiple subsidies, free subsidies, so that they're gaming the system. So it really taps into these kind of larger narrative of like the kind of long trope of the, you know, quote unquote, well, welfare queen, that there are, right. you know, leeches to the public system. Um, and so, you know, I think it's worth lifting up here that the waste, fraud and abuse argument is really part of a much larger narrative that's really against um, poor people and poor people of color in particular. Um, but I mean, I'm hoping you can go into this, but like what waste, fraud and abuse actually does exist and what have you, like what did, what did the previous SEC do to already try to address some of that? And, and you know, why are we still in this place where that, that argument still carries some weight? Well, number one, when you set a narrative um, and when you're pithy enough or uh, eloquent enough uh, to, uh, uh, to be able to convey it and it uh, takes hold, no matter how many facts that are, are uh, before you, um, it, it is hard, uh, you know, to, to change, uh, you know, that dynamic. So, you know, let me say, you know, that, that, that's, uh, that's a general um, statement. Um, I will be the first uh, to admit that there were issues with, with the program. We recognized that at the beginning of the last administration and put corrective measures in place. To including doing some things that were very unpopular, uh, you know, take, uh, you know, getting rid of, um, you know, a, a subsidy. Um, and Jessica, I, I know uh, I might have to lean on you on this. When getting rid of that subsidy, the link-up part of the, um, you know, subsidy uh, that would have allowed you uh, allowed a low-income customer to get recovery, or, or the, the the company to get recovery to uh, connect a low-income customer in addition to that monthly. Um, a, a, a subsidy uh, that they were getting. So we got rid of that. Um, and we also um, increased um, and let it be known that if we found you doing something wrong, we were going to come after you. So you have seen some massive, incredibly massive um, fines being levied. Um, but the one thing, again, that we realized, um, particularly uh, a, a couple of years ago when we instituted the reforms in 2012, is that the biggest vulnerability that the program had was that the company was going after the customer, approving the customer, verifying the customer, and there were no checks and balances. And so what uh, we proposed under the last administration is there would be a neutral third-party verifier, um, that, and that would be a, about a $50 million investment to be put in place that the company, the individuals providing services, they would no longer uh, be the ones to say, you come into the program or you not. 
there would be a neutral third party verifier that would take care of that. And the only thing the company would do in essence was provide service. That would have taken care or addressed, address, it would have addressed, I would say upwards of 75% or more of the problems of the waste, fraud and abuse that, um, that uh, my colleagues speak uh, so highly of. That is going in, um, being put into place. There are at least a half a dozen states today that have that in place, uh, and that part was growing. And before we could even see the results of the targeted reforms that would get rid of the biggest, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the biggest issue uh, when in vulnerability when it comes to this program, then you have this. So I have to ask: Are you really focusing on getting rid of waste, fraud, or abuse, or is your um, objective, getting rid of the program and making the most vulnerable uh, less well off. Uh, because if it's just waste, fraud, and abuse, what we put into place was uh, everybody recognizes uh, would, would would address that. And so uh, I can tell I'm passionate. Guilty as charged. But my thing is, um, you solve a problem. You don't put a rule or a policy or decision in place that will create more problems uh, for the most vulnerable. And what is being proposed will create more problems. It will not allow the reforms that go into place, uh, you know, in, in place, get in, um, go into place effectively. And um, uh, so I, I really have to, and I usually don't do this, but I really have to question your motives because reforming, fixing waste, crowd and abuse, and closing the digital gaps and divides obviously are not your objectives. Well, you know, Commissioner Clyburn, I'm so glad, first of all, that you are passionate. And then second of all, that you brought up motives, because I want to ask you and ask everyone who is calling for these changes. You know, why why is um, the FCC majority taking this course of action? And, and, and you know, what is really happening here? A handful of businesses uh, that um, that are focusing their business model is that high margin postpaid customer. They're pushing for this. They will benefit from this. Uh, there is uh, one provider um, that um, uh, that I guess I can, can mention, um, uh, you know, Sprint, um, that, you know, could very well benefit from this because they're facilities-based. But even Sprint, who would benefit from this, um, uh, you know, from this uh, reform, is not enamored with it and says it would not uh, totally benefit. So if, if you've got a high-margin um, postpaid um, consumer, you're the one who would benefit, and they obviously, uh, with all due respect, must be the only voices the uh, FCC majority is listening to because no one else uh, benefits other than those companies. And I have to say, looking at the, the docket as well, um, and going back to something that Jessica said, there's widespread opposition to these proposals, even from those large companies um, where we typically see ourselves on the other side. Um, because even these companies, so for example, uh, Commissioner Clyburn, you just you mentioned Sprint, and um, there's some other big telcos as well. They actually have contracts with the reseller providers, who, as I mentioned earlier, provide service to seventy to over seventy percent of current Lifeline recipients. So they actually have these uh, contracts in place to sell their extra capacity to these resellers, so the resellers can provide the service. And 
So it, it actually, um, by removing the resellers from the program, there's it, it would impact their business model and it would impact their margins. Um, so there is just widespread opposition to this proposal. Be, and it goes back to um, exactly what Commissioner Clyburn was saying, which is, you know, what are the motives? Are the motives really to reform the program and, um, you know, get rid of this uh, alleged waste, fraud, and abuse? Um, or are the motives really just to to kill the program altogether? You know, Colette, I think um, I agree with everything that the commissioner and Carmen just said. And I think there, there are a handful of politicians uh, that see this as a good talking point uh, for how they're tough on crime uh, or, or fraud or whatnot. And um, they seem really eager to capture allegations of waste, fraud, and abuse and, and use them as they ask questions at hearings or put forward this proposal, if we're talking about the, the three in the majority of the FCC, to show that they're, um, they're tough on crime and not allowing government resources to be wasted or misspent. But I think what uh, what really makes me question their motives is that they use um, information, including there was a government accountability office report that came out last fall that highlighted some waste, fraud, and abuse, but put that in context. That report said, we're pulling data from a time period that happened before the reforms that the commissioner mentioned mm -hmm. were even put into effect. There were reforms that went into effect in 2012, another set of, of really excellent reforms that went into effect in 2016 that are still being rolled out as we speak, and yet they pulled data um, from a period before, before the reforms went into effect to say uh, there was waste, some waste, fraud, and abuse in the program perpetrated predominantly by um, the companies that provide Lifeline. So this was a glimpse from the past that doesn't reflect what's happening today. And so it's hard for me to believe that uh, the motives are to keep this program clean when we haven't even had a chance to take a breath and evaluate whether the, those two sets of reforms are working. Um, when, all, when all factors, including the GA, the Government Accountability Report itself said, yeah, we actually think those reforms will go a long way to addressing the problems that we have identified here. And on top of all of this, when you look and listen to what uh, the now majority was uh, uh, critical of uh, uh, the former majority uh, uh, before uh, the um, elections, uh, you, you know, they kept saying, where's the economic analysis? And we have now instituted this Office of Economic Analysis where we'll look at every decision uh, that we make um, and through this lens. And we will make no major changes until, uh, you know, we have, um, you know, a report that, uh, uh, that, that maps out, that affirms uh, our direction. Where's the economic analysis, uh, you know, with this uh, shift? Where is it? You ask for the numbers. You ask for the economic justification, the underpinning. You ask for, you know, you ask for that, crickets, you don't hear it, you don't see the submission. So again, um, all of the things that, um, that um, uh, the now majority has been talking about, the economic analysis, 
you know, looking, being technology neutral, not putting your thumb on the um, on the scale when it comes to innovation and investment and opportunities. I see multiple sums. <laughs> you know, I see, but what I don't see is um, any economic analysis. And so, again, you've got to wonder, you know, you are, you know, being, um, and, and, and I know this sounds harsh, you're being hypocritical to the, all of the things that you've been saying that were supposedly uh, so lacking, um, you know, in the past. And you're not instituting the very things that you said should be a part of the analysis. Uh, and um, again, it, it goes, I cannot help given that, but wonder what is your motivation here? You know, why are you doing this? Where are the numbers? Where are the, where's the justification? Uh, because everyone who is weighing in, every party who's weighing in um, from CTIA to the others, they're showing, they're affirming that this will have a negative economic uh, uh, effect on a number of businesses in the ecosystem. And so, uh, you know, it, I, I just, I can't help but wonder again, uh, why the push, um, you know, uh, why this when uh, there are only a handful of people who will directly benefit um, who are for this change. There's a definite common thread that goes throughout what you all are saying about this FCC's response here and that this isn't really about addressing waste, fraud and abuse. And I think if you look at the statements that the chairman of the FCC makes to the public, you know, he claims to be very interested in, you know, closing the digital divide. Well, wouldn't a program like this, you know, at least be a, a critical component to, to helping address that? And so I think Stephen touched on this earlier, but it seems like there's a common thread here, right, which is this FCC's war on the poor. And this attack on Lifeline is really one component of it. And Commissioner Clyburn, everything throughout your tenure at the FCC was essentially fighting against this war on the poor. But I'm wondering if, if folks can talk about what some of those other elements are and, you know, kind of what else is going on at the FCC that is really part of this. I'm I'm happy to start, and I'll just I, I do want to address one thing, which is there are poor people in every state. There are poor people of every political affiliation, of every color, and so to the extent that politicians are pandering, thinking that attacking the poor is good for their uh, political careers, I would caution against that. My colleague Derek Turner crunched the numbers in Kansas, which is Chairman Pai's home state. Uh, typically a red state, uh, and found that right now the average number of lifeline providers per zip code is five. If the, if the rollbacks went into effect, the average number of lifeline providers in Kansas per zip code will be one, and that there will be many zip codes with no lifeline uh, broadband access whatsoever. So uh, this affects everyone. And so I would I would urge if, if you're politicians, to the extent you're listening, <laughs> this is not a good political move, uh, regardless of who you are and who you think you represent, because it affects everybody um, in terms Stephen, of the other. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was about to throw it over to you, Commissioner, because I know uh, oh. you have been, you've been a champion for a couple of other issues uh, at the right. FCC including net neutrality and including uh, yeah. prison phone justice. And I know uh, right. 
you you when you were the interim chair, you actually did something really powerful and passed an order to help make um, prison phone chargers less exorbitant for folks. Yeah. And so you, I, you know, I want to turn it over to you because you really have been an incredible champion on that issue. You probably said it more succinctly than I ever would. Um, but, but what, you know, but thank you for that. You know, but one of the things to, to, to talk about, to bridge what you and, and Stephen, you know, were saying is when you talk about, if you put a particular faith that feeds into a certain narrative about the Lifeline program when it comes to the inmate calling issue, uh, when it comes to net, you know, net neutrality benefits, then it's easy to, you know, have this, um, you know, just negative um, caricature um, that feeds into our, some of our worst um, fears uh, and prejudices, dare I say that, um, and, and that further justifies. And even if I, you know, living in Kansas or living in some of these other square states with a population might not be as diverse, uh, you know, I might uh, be disadvantaged. But darn it, you know, um, that other person who I've, you know, painted this picture of, um, they will look like, you know, they, they, they will get theirs. And that, to me, that is almost at the heart, you know, of everything that we're speaking about, uh, that we're putting this, um, you know, untrue, unrealistic, uh, you know, not valid picture on who will, quote unquote, benefit from this or who, uh, you know, the, 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 the population that will take advantage of this. And it's not the population that I believe is in vogue or is worthy of, um, you know, moving to, um, you know, having tools and move to the next economic level. Um, you know, what do I care about, uh, the, you know, the family of those 2.3 million, um, you know, uh, incarcerated? You know, they're, you know they, they obviously did something wrong. Why the heck do I care how much they, and the they is actually the families, they pay to keep in touch? What difference does it make? Charge them whatever you want. And you don't realize by doing that 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 grandmother um, who's trying to keep in touch can't afford her meds. So, so that means she's more apt to be in the emergency room, um, you know, than, um, you know, walking that child to the classroom. You know, these are the types of things that people don't connect the economic um, and other dots uh, that will have negative consequences if we don't have a robust um, a workable lifeline program, if we don't have um, truly uh, you know, true real net neutrality that ensures that um, all traffic and all access to the internet and the other services uh, are open and unimpeded. Uh, you, you know, all of these things that we talk about um, are so dependent on policies, uh, federal policies coming out the FCC uh, that are open and inclusive and really are meant to address the needs of those um, of those most in need. Um, we're here, this agencies like the FCC are in place because we recognize uh, that the market on its own will not address the needs of uh, those uh, who are might not have um, eco economic wealth um, or that there are um, large numbers of people that I can get um, economies of scale and scope. I just wanted to let you know, I did go to econ, you know, uh, major uh, banking and finance and finance and economics. So if you don't have large economies of scale and scope, then it's going to be very difficult for the business model to be made. Entities like the FCC are in place to ensure policies are in place to address the needs of those where the business case can't be made. And when that fails, 
which it will fail if this uh if the the uh the current proposal is realized uh, uh then we leave millions um you know on the sidelines and and there will be a higher price to be be there will be a higher price paid by us all if that happens you know it's um i want to pick up on something you said commissioner Clyburn. you said those in need um and you know, the census came out with some numbers a couple of days ago for um, data from 2017. And one of the things that it shows is that those in need, those living, you know, at or below the poverty line is actually growing. Um, yeah. So their numbers show that there's about 40 million people right now in across the country who are living at or below the poverty line. Um, if you factor in things like the cost of food, the kind of any kind of additional cost based on the geography, based geographically on where you live, the added cost of healthcare, um, the out-of-pocket expenses for things outside of you know uh, things that are covered by government programs. That number jumps up to 45 million, and then you have an additional 95 million who are living you know close to the poverty line. So roughly about 140 million people in the United States are living at or near poverty. Um, and that's, you know, that's close to half of the U.S. population. It's about 42%. Um, so when we think about what the FCC is doing around this very specific program that, you know, currently supports about 10 million, you know, Lifeline subscribers, um, we are talking about, you know, almost half of the country who at some point in their life are one emergency, one natural disaster away from being um, dependent on programs like Lifeline. Um, and when I look at the larger picture, you know, when you look at the policies that are being implemented at the Department of Education, at, uh, you know, at HUD, um, coming out of the EPA, there are all these things that are being put in place that are um, making it much more difficult and much more challenging for people who are living at or, you know, near the poverty line making it difficult for that 140 million people um, and really only benefiting a handful, a small handful of people, all, a small handful of companies that are already concentrating, you know, a vast majority of wealth in this country. Um, and that's, I think that's to me, I think the cruelest thing, not just of what's happening currently at the FCC, but also just happening, you know, writ large across this administration um, and some of the policies that are being implemented and some of the philosophies behind it um, of that 140 million, you know, a little over half are people of color. Um, so I think it's worth lifting up again, like who is who is the face um, that is being um, propped forward or intended with harm? And it's, it's communities of color that are going to feel the brunt end of this um, across the board. When you demonize a program or put a negative spin on um, on a program, um, you have this painful self-fulfilling prophecy of individuals who qualify. Because again, we know that the numbers of uh, who actually take advantage of the program are you know it's fewer than a third. Um, you know, just because I don't have money does not mean you know that does not mean that I don't have pride. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I often I've heard me say this story. Tell, tell this. My grandmother, who grew up um, who grew up in Berkeley County, South Carolina. Um, I mean, the rule is that the road still road is still not paved where uh, you know uh, where she called home as an adult. Um, 
she would not accept food stamps. She qualified clearly because she was proud. And now you're talking about connectivity in the 21st century, which is essential. And you got people because the powers that be, the majority has demonized the program. You know, it would make you feel less than for even taking part in the program. Uh, it, you know, you've got this face, um, you know, of, of the person on this program that you don't want to be. And so you've got some people who are making sacrifices to stay off the program. That is another serious, long-lasting negative consequence to the tenor and the environment that's being built uh, because of uh, these series of next steps. Uh, again, we should be about using respectful means of bridging divides. Instead, we're putting this scarlet letter on, on, on those who qualify for the program, and nobody wants that letter, um, you know, on, uh, on their person. And, and, you know, to me, every time I think about it, I think about another layer of tragedy to all of this, um, you know, to a program and to an agency that is supposed to be about closing divides and, and, and ensuring, it, do we, ensuring that we do so in a way that's, uh, uh, that is respectful to those who need it. And that is clearly not, um, you know, what is happening. And uh, it, we're violating so many prime, we, they are violating so many prime directives. It, it's just hard to keep up. You're supposed to leave this ecosystem better than you found it. And um, with all due respect, um, uh, if this passes, uh, we'll be on a we will be on a trajectory of, of, of making, of, of leaving it worse at the end of um, uh, this term. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, thank you so much, Commissioner Clyburn, for that, for grounding us and really what's at stake. Um, it really does come down to, you know, what is the trajectory that we want to be on as a society, as people um, in community with one another? And I want to thank everyone, Carmen, Jessica, Stephen, um, Candace and I are, are so grateful for all of your voices here today because it is, uh, you know, something that we can still fight, that we are fighting, that all of you are leading the fight in so valiantly. And it's important that we, we also change that tenor and change that conversation and make it understood that this is a moral question and that we have a responsibility to everyone among us, to the poor, to people who are facing domestic violence situations, LGBTQ youth, people of color, so many people who are going to be disproportionately impacted if this proposal were to pass. And I, I really believe um, that we, you know, that we can win. And I'm filled with so much hope because of y'all. So just thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and, and so we're going to wrap up the conversation and just, again, go forward with this sense of great responsibility, staying vigilant, and also a lot of hope um, and even joy because of the way that you all move through the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Connection, a podcast by Free Press and Free Press Action Fund. You can find future episodes at freepress.net and everywhere we live on social media. Free Press is an advocacy group fighting for your rights to connect and communicate. Learn more at freepress.net.